The saddest thing for me covering this whole story was how, and we did a campaign against it, God, yes. the two women were pitted against each other when all along it was the brothers. Diana was absolutely clear about this. She saw that Harry was there as William's wingman and he's turned out to be William's hitman. I think they're very, very happy here. Um, and given what's happened with uh, Spare, or as Charles might do a follow-up book called Despair, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think they never moved back to the UK. Welcome to the Right Roll Podcast with me, Andrea. And me, Emmy. 2023 started off with a bang for sure with the release of Prince Harry's tell-all book, Spare, and it really did what it said on the tin. We'll be talking all about the royal autobiography before heading to sunny California to take a deep dive into the Duke and Duchess of Sussex's new life in Montecito. Harry's book and primetime interviews may now be infamous, and we'll be talking all about it to Diana's biographer, Andrew Moulton, who reveals why the prince will never regret writing it. But we're not just here to talk about that. Now the royal couple are in the States, what is life like for them? We'll be joined by Montecito journalist and resident Richard Minards, as well as author and royal expert Sandro Minetti. But first, we're joined by our very own royal editor and podcast favourite, Emily Nash. Hello. Hi, Emily. <laughs> Hello. What a, what a time. What a time to be alive. <laughs> it took me days to recover. I mean, we heard from Tom Bradby that he needed a long lie down after the interview. So when you see the volume of material in this book, it really is quite extraordinary. Nothing like we've ever seen from a member of the royal family. Yeah, he really didn't mince his words when he said it'd be a tell-all autobiography, did he? I mean, I don't even know where to start. Well, I'll start from the beginning because when I picked up the book, you know, it starts off after Philip, well, I mean, I won't go into much detail, but it starts off after Prince Philip's funeral. And then it goes on, talks about when he found out that Diana died. And as I was reading that, I was very emotional. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. I kept saying in my head, oh my God, he's really going to tell us exactly what happened. And for me, it was very moving. But then it quickly turned into kind of, I was just gobsmacked for the rest of it, I think. What was it about you that, that shocked you the most? Uh, I just think he went into many details that I think if he had left them out, we wouldn't have missed those bits. I think as soon as he started to talk about his frostbitten private parts, um, I was like, I was, is this a joke? And I, I do think he added some bits because he wanted it to be like funny. But I, I think he's definitely trying to get his sense of humour across. Yes, um, but I, I just think it ended up being kind of like more bizarre than funny. I was like, w- w- why? Emily, what was your takeaway? I have so many thoughts about this and so many questions. I mean, first up, it's a great read, you know, it's very yeah. compelling. And as a royal writer, um, been covering this beat for 10 years, but obviously, obviously anyone living in this country has grown up with the royals in the background mm-hmm. and in the media. It's really fascinating to get this level of detail and the psychological insight in particular, and obviously I'm not a professional, but you really get to understand where his opinions about life have been formed. Yeah. And you understand why, you know, he has this very difficult relationship with the media, with sections of the media, I hesitate to say, because some of us had a great relationship with him. But I think what comes away from the book is just overriding sadness, you know, overriding sadness, sadness for what he went through, but also sadness for the rest of the family. I I don't think any of them particularly deserved this exposure. But also Harry does come out, I mean, part of me thinks it 
I understand Harry a bit more. I think he does have a lot of trauma from childhood, Diana's death, and then not dealing with it. And then obviously, you know, he talks about how everyone used to joke that he was the spare. And, you know, things like that get to you in the end. And I, I do feel bad for him. And You know, his relationship with William, it was interesting finding out that actually it wasn't as ideal as we thought, you know. Appearances can be deceptive. Yeah. But according, I- according to Harry, however, we are, it's really important to say that we are hearing only one side yeah. of this story at the moment. Do you think he's gone into this knowing that the royal family won't respond and knowing that he can tell his truth and not receive a response? Do you think that might have been, I don't know, comforting for him that he could really go in because it was like the other side of this will never be told? I think you're right, Emmy, because you know he says himself that now he has this freedom to write this and he couldn't have written the book had he still been within the institution. And you know, it's he knows the way that the palace operates better than anyone and that they are most likely going to take a dignified silence because what do they have to gain? You know, he has nothing to lose at this point, whereas they have everything to lose by getting caught up in some kind yeah. of tit-for-tat public battle. It's their absolute worst nightmare. I mean, I've interviewed him a couple of times in the past and he's always been really an open book and someone who shoots from the hip, you know, you could just ask him one question and his response would be like 20 minutes long, interview finished. Yeah. But, you know, that he was a dream to interview because he had a lot to say and he is a very open person. I just have issues with something. First of all, when I was reading the book, I was like, maybe he hasn't read it back. He doesn't know exactly what's he, gone he, in. He recorded the I audio know, book. but then I was like, he, <laughs> he recorded it. Exactly. He re- actually had to read this And even during his TV interviews, you know, the one with Anderson Cooper, he was hearing Anderson read the part where he talks about when he noticed that William had... He talks about William's alarming baldness and how his famous resemblance to mummy has faded with age. It's really quite unflattering. Yeah, but when Anderson is reading it, he actually laughs in the interview. He finds it funny. And I'm like, that is not funny. Not to us viewers, not to William. I mean, that... And I really think he thought he was funny in some parts of the book. I mean, but time was when those brothers would publicly take the mickey out of each other. Yeah, but when there was some sense of, like, relationship, it's not the case now. No. Those jokes are not welcome right now. Not if you're not on speakers. No. You know, I have no qualms against Harry and Meghan at all, and I never have. No. But I guess from my own perspective and my own family, and I think a lot of people can relate to this, is that even if... I never spoke to any of them again. And even if the world was interested and I felt like I'd been done badly, how, I I just still don't understand how someone who claims to love and respect these people could say these things about them and and expose these things. It's like, but I just think it's like, what mindset must he have gotten to? To, to be able to be like, okay, yes, let's publish this, when it's so well, damning well, of his family. I do believe the reports that say he wanted out of this book. I, I really think, I believe. He wanted to pull the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think that I think that would have been a consideration probably when he understood how unwell his grandmother was. Yeah. Um, because God forbid this had come out while she oh was still alive. Yeah, yeah. Look, it, it, you know, I, I'm not here to particularly defend him. One thing I will say is he's had hundreds of thousands of words written about him and books written about him of course he has a right absolutely to give his version of events i think that what has shocked people is that volume of information about other members of the family that he's revealing but i think his argument would be that a he's settling scores and correcting the narrative where he perceives it has been reported wrongly which is understandable it's understandable 
but B, I think he's also sort of launching a bit of a defense because I think he under- he knows that people have not been happy with the way he and Megan left, with the way things happened. Yeah. And I feel like he's trying through the book to justify the decisions that they made. Now, yeah. you know, he sees things through a real prism of the media being responsible for everything. Yeah. I don't think it's that simple. I mean, no. clearly, just looking at the state of the relationships between family members there are other things going on yeah you know i when i after i read the book and someone in spain actually read it at the same time i remember messaging and saying god you know camilla really comes out bad charles actually comes out good and she said to me and she said the only thing i can take away from this is that megan has three children and i'm sorry but Andrea. I, no, I'm sorry, I do not disagree. Oh my God. You know, it wouldn't have been my first thought, but there are things in this book that, you know, him, you know. Taking the, all the laughing gas for me. Yeah, that's that's, that's mean, a red line. I'm sorry, that's a red I'm line. Sorry, but that, that's just not funny. Meg was so calm. I was calm too. But I saw two ways of enhancing my calm. One, Nando's chicken, brought by our bodyguards. Two, a canister of laughing gas beside Meg's bed. I took several slow, penetrating hits. Meg bouncing on a giant purple ball, a proven way of giving nature a push, laughed and rolled her eyes. I took several more hits, and now I was bouncing too. When her contractions began to quicken and deepen, a nurse came and tried to give some laughing gas to Meg. There was none left. You know, the admissions to drugs and, ha- and taking mushrooms when, you know, I get it. But when you're... you're- wife is asleep and your child is in in asleep and you go out and you roll a joint and it's like I just feel it's all a bit I just would not admit it and I don't think it to me it just feels like he is Megan's third child I just feel like yeah. he's very immature for 38 just, yeah. uh, and I don't think he should have told us that. I'm sorry. I could have lived without knowing those moments. I did see uh, it was a tweet or post or something where someone was like maybe he's done this so there are no skeletons. There's nothing that anyone can use against him ever again because he said it all himself. I think I think that's a really good point, actually. Emily, you've read the book. Have you found any inaccuracies? Because I have. And when I find an inaccuracy in like, you know, docuseries or a book, it just kind of ruins the whole thing for me. Because I feel like if this is inaccurate, what else could be inaccurate? Look, I think I need to go back and look at it a bit more closely. There are certainly moments that I have thought about and reflected on my own experience um, at the other end of them but again it's all about his truth and it is his perception you can't deny his perception or, or his feelings about a certain situation but what is it that's leapt out at you okay there's one thing and it's just the tiniest thing but we actually got a reader and messaging us as well there's a part in the book where he talks about you know after diana's death um his aunt sarah gives him a present that diana bought before she died which is an xbox so diana died in 1997 the xbox launched in 2001 and to me i'm like that is very nerdy but also brilliant i know but like what how would you get it wrong and i'm i'm guessing he confused it with a playstation because i googled playstation launched in 1994 but he knows what an xbox looks like and you know further on in the book he talks about not cop and what he has inside and he mentions that he's got an xbox console so like i'm just thinking facts like that that's a very important fact you're the last present that your mom ever bought for you 
yeah, it's wrong. And maybe it was him talking about his experiences and then saying, oh, it might have been an Xbox, it might have been a PlayStation. But like the people writing the book or researching the book should have got this right. And I'm thinking, you know, there are other bits that I'm like, well, now, is it right? Is it not right? Like, what's happened here? Like, to me, this is like a very important gift that you wouldn't get wrong. But yet, you did. Yeah. I'm not saying he made it up. It probably was a PlayStation. I mean, yeah. He, but he it's just, had it's, mis- it's just really annoyed me. You think they have fact checkers, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. He does he does talk a lot about the fact that his memories are really yeah. displayed. He once said that to me actually when I was talking to him about his mother's anniversary is coming up and I said, How are you gonna mark it? And he said at the time that he and William were planning to have this statue commissioned. Yeah. But he said to me, Look, it's really weird. We were in uh, Orlando in Florida and he said, Last time I was here was with my mother and the guy, uh, the host of the Disney resort where he was staying, gave him this book photographs of him and his brother and his mum there however many years earlier and he said it was extraordinary because he didn't remember anything any of these moments and I think it's quite a recognized sign of trauma isn't yeah, it yeah, that yeah, you definitely. just block things out so you know I think we can forgive him for a little bit I am of, forgiving uh, him I am I'm just saying <laughs> that it's just annoying <laughs> excellent and would you like a job as a sub-editor no. <laughs> I've got enough this got kind enough. of forensic <laughs> What's next? Because Harry mentioned that he now feels free, that the docuseries is out, the book is out. He can kind of move forward, look at, look at the future, maybe not look at the past so much. He's been doing that for the last two years. What do you think will happen? What can we expect from them? Well, I think they obviously want to move away from this. And yet... They don't want to lose their titles. They said, well, Harry said, what's the point? Yeah, what would be the point of that? Well, you know, listening to the interviews he's given, he absolutely wants to reconcile with, with fa- his family. Family, not institution. With, with the family. I want a family, not an institution. You know, he has every right to say that. But I think there has to be some kind of meeting in the middle. Interestingly, one of the things he said in a couple of the TV interviews is if there were to be a role in the Commonwealth, he'd be up for it. And that's quite extraordinary because, you know, they've talked a bit in denigrating terms about the Commonwealth in terms of Britain's colonial history as an empire, you know, and Charles himself has talked about, you know, the shame of slavery and he's touched on that. He has to be a lot more careful now he's king. But it sounds like they are still keen to have some involvement on the world stage. What he's saying in the book is that they needed to put an ocean between them and the drama going on in this country. Now, whether the king would ever be amenable to that remains to be seen and I think that you know William is a key player in this as the future king himself and given the state of their relationship at the minute I I can't see how how that would possibly work well exactly so now he's in Montecito uh, with his wife Megan and their two children happier than ever he says yeah, so exactly what he wanted for his family and for himself. I mean, have you seen where they live? I would quite like no, that. I would mind family. that. I would not mind that. I would roll up a joint. I'm joking. Sorry, <laughs> Andrea. No, 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 that's a joke. <laughs> um, what do you think's next for them in in their Californian lives? Well, I think the plan is to expand on their philanthropic work. Yeah, I think most people would like to see. More of that, perhaps, and less of the, as you say, looking back to the past, because we've heard so much now about this rift. But I think what they both are brilliant at is the the public facing work. And I think they still have so much influence, particularly in America, that they could use this for so much good. And I think people would respect that. I think 
This is my suggestion to them. They need to launch an Instagram, Archwell official Instagram. They need to give us a bit more of what they gave us in the docuseries. Amazing pictures, amazing videos. I loved it. I enjoyed it. I think we want to see more of that, which is completely different to what we get from the royal family here. Because I feel like since they left there, their comms, the way they do the communication is very similar to the palace. You know, all these press releases, a bit boring, you know, in my opinion. Um, I think they could be a bit more Swedish royals. I think they could be a bit more fun. Well, they could they're, share they're a bit more. They're not royals anymore. Well, so. I know. I know they're not royals, but they still hold the, you know, their titles and the way they live their life. I just feel like they need to go on Instagram. I know they have an issue with social media and the way that, you know... It's been crazy, and the you know the reactions against Megan and all the comments. But listen, they can do social media the way that it will suit them, you know. And I feel like they just need to forget about it. They need to move on. Show us what they want to show us. We'll accept it. Whatever it is, we'll take it. The main reason I think they're stuck at this impasse is because they are seeing things from fundamentally different points of view. And and Harry says at one point, my family have accused me of being delusional and paranoid. They obviously are very concerned about him and the way that he is viewing this situation with the media. And he, understandably, is very frustrated that they don't seem to be shifting in their approach. You know, they're not speaking out. They're not. And let's not forget there were statements put out to support him. My experience of Kensington Palace at the time was that they were not saying anything. And Jason Knorf, who's mentioned in the book, was very keen to not feed the beast as well. This phrase keeps coming back. But I think that... Probably what has taken it almost to a, a stage beyond repair is coming for the wives. Yeah. Charles, you know, has been in love with Camilla forever, for for better or worse, for wrong or right. And let's not forget that was all very uncomfortable for a very long time. But he is fiercely loyal and protective of her. And the same goes for William. And I think that they could probably cope with an attack on themselves, yeah, almost better than their wives being brought I'm into I, it. I am sad because, you know, the, we had high hopes definitely for the Fab Four. It, it is very sad. I think, oh, life would be so much different had it all worked out. Even if they had had half-half, you know, it would have been so good. I'm, I'm just sad that it all got to this stage because I miss Megan. I miss Harry. Like, I missed how fun they were, how great, you know, the great photos they gave us. You know, it oh, it's just so annoying. <laughs> One thing I would say, look, I was at the Royal Foundation Symposium where the four of them famously sat yes. together. Kate was pregnant. Purple dress. Purple dress. I think I tweeted at the time, oh my God, Megan is amazing. She like, is, she's a she, breath of fresh air. Yeah. She is brilliant. It was when she talked about women already having a voice, yeah. but they needed to be empowered the to use their voice. Spoke. And I just thought, thank God for this. Yes. This is exactly what you want it, from, a, a, yeah. you know, a member of the Royal Family. It's not political. This is not political, but it is having a bit more of a yeah an opinion and i think she was we all... natural oh she is well i say in parts no she is a natural she's still got that yeah and, and, and i want to see more of that i really do so i think they just need to move forward do lots of stuff just get out there but but one thing i would say in defense of kate in particular she's naturally an introvert yeah she's yeah. a very shy person yes. you know she is in this for the long haul because she loves william yeah and she loves her family and it's a big commitment yeah from her and of course it's going to be unsettling Absolutely. if someone else comes in 
and shakes things up and, and is confident and is a speaker and is an extrovert and it's just basically opposite. everything that you're not really Absolutely. yeah you've got to question yourself there has to be some self-consciousness there is so, that word yeah yeah but and again and i think that the saddest thing for me covering this whole story was how and we did a campaign against it God, yes. the two women were pitted against each oh, other yeah. when all along it was the brothers yeah yeah I feel like we could talk about this all day, but we will wrap things up. Um, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Wow, we could have talked to Emily for ages. I know, that conversation should have gone on for hours. We needed a part two. We definitely do. But moving on, his book obviously will be talked about for many, many years, as was his mother's, Princess Diana's book, Diana, Her True Story in Her Own Words. And we're lucky enough to be joined by Diana's biographer, Andrew Morton. Hello and welcome to our podcast, Andrew Morton. It's so nice to have you with us today. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's a fascinating period of time in the royal family. Fascinating is one word for it. (laughs) You're here today to talk to us about Prince Harry's memoir, Spare. And I wanted to ask you what you think made Prince Harry write this book. Well, a pretty handsome book deal from Penguin. I think it's $20 million. Having said that, he wants to give his side of the the story. And that's been a consistent refrain over the last few months. You got very close to Princess Diana for several years. What do you think she would make of Harry's approach? Well, in many respects, Harry's approach is far more open than hers was. She used me as kind of literary intermediary to tell her story. But there's a kind of a recklessness on both sides. Very Spencer, it seems to me, that when I was working with Diana, the one question I never asked her is, why are you doing it? Because she might have thought to herself, why am I doing it? As for Harry, he's doing it, obviously, financially, but also, in his words, in his mentality, to set the record straight. Well, he says what he's wanting to get out of this is to sit down with his family and work things through. How possible do you think that is? Well, given the revelations which have emerged over the last few days, I think very doubtful. Who's going to sit in a room with Harry and not think there's going to be a hidden microphone there and it's going to be broadcast by Netflix or some other medium? Do you think that Harry sort of recent interviews and obviously the book coming out is to try and push the royal family into making a a public statement well it's it's an odd way of doing it to make a public statement or that he needs to have private conversations and from what you can see since the death of prince philip and also obviously with her majesty that their comings together have been very short and and notably with that um uh, walk down the long walk at windsor very awkward i wanted to ask how writing a book changed diana's life for the better and do you think it will do the same for prince harry well that's a good question i i believe that diana her true story the book that she cooperated with me on really transformed her life it gave her the power and it gave her the the, the the sense that she could be an independent humanitarian. And we saw that in the last few months, a couple of years of her life, where she looked super glamorous, she looked very controlled, and she looked as though she was making sense of her life. And I was very proud of being involved in that process. As for Harry, he was already happily married. He wasn't unhappily married. That's a huge difference between uh, mother and son but he was very unhappily married to the institution of the monarchy. 
And he never really appreciated that, yes, he was popular, but the position that he held was never going to be an equal one with his brother. He was always going to be not just a spare, but in the shadow of his brother. And this has been something which has happened down the generations. And it's something that he didn't want to, obviously, uh, tolerate any longer. Going back to writing the book, you know, you worked with Diana whilst writing the book. And even though she told her story, it must have been a very, very painful process, you know, bringing out things from the past, you know, things that she only maybe thought to herself and it was the first time that she was telling someone about them. It can't have been easy for Harry either. Well, that's a a very good question. I mean, for Diana, I remember on the occasions where she was in tears talking about some of the issues in her life notably her half-hearted suicide attempts. And I remember when I, I think it was chapter six, I, I sent her to read through and she was in tears reading it because it just brought back so many memories. And her she did have a difficult childhood. She did have an unhappy childhood. And talking about that as well, also, it, you know, it's like ploughing a field. It brought to the surface all kinds of unhappiness. And for Harry too, I mean, it's a cathartic process, as any kind of long-term discussion is, but it's also a difficult process. And for Harry, he's already had quite a lot of um, discussions with therapists and so on over the years. Did you become some sort of therapist to Diana in the process, or was it strictly professional? Like, Did you ask her to expand on certain subjects? Did you just like... Yeah, I mean, the issue primarily was to get her story from her point of view. So was it therapy? Yeah, in, in many respects, it was it was her just getting it out for the first time. And by the time she was talking to Panorama, I think she turned it into a kind of a shtick. That is to say, she had the story well honed, whereas when she was speaking to me a few years earlier, it was all very raw and very fresh and at times quite difficult for her. And I have to say, I, I did admire the way that she just you know, ploughed on. And when we talked about, for example, these uh, suicide attempts, she made a joke of it saying, you know, well, Andrew has pretty well written my obituary, hasn't he? (laughs) So so amidst the tears, humour was never far away with Diana. And I think it's one of the overlooked aspects of her personality that she never took herself too seriously as a princess and as a human being. But going into that book, when you started thinking about it and developing it, did you think it was going to be this raw or did it surprise you? Oh, look, like everybody else, I believed in the fairy tale. It's not like I had some kind of special knowledge about Diana's life. I just felt that the marriage might be in trouble, but there was never any sense that they would ever split up. So like everybody else in the royal circuit, I believe that the, the, the prince and princess of Wales would eventually become the king and queen despite their difficulties. And so for me, listening to that first tape recording in a a cafe in North London, in Ryslip. It was like entering, walking through a wardrobe in Narnia, or like entering a parallel universe to be told these things about a woman called Camilla, never heard of her, about this illness called bulimia, never heard of it, about all these other things that were going on in her life, this kind of snapshot. It, it left me re- reeling and uh, and I defy anybody not to be absolutely stunned by it. And I was. And I've always said it's a bit like the royal version of All the President's Men. From that moment on, I was harbouring a secret and it was a dangerous secret. And yeah, yeah. Uh, as you may have seen in The Crown, 
uh, the, the, some of the factual accuracies yeah. in, in the episode there was, you know, my office was broken into, uh, the, the intermediary, James Coulters, was knocked off his bike in, bizarrely, Parliament Square. Yeah, so all kinds of things happened. It's, so, you know, it's worth several episodes of The Crown not just one. What was it like seeing yourself in that? Sorry, this is so like this no, is irrelevant, but I'm lo- so I curious. What, what was your reaction? That. Well, I've I've been portrayed a couple of times over the years. Most recently in in Diana the Musical by a, a, oh. a chap a chap who was shorter than me, bald, and but was a very good oh, no. but was a very good tap dancer. So seeing somebody play me in the Crown wasn't too much of a shock. But my character comes across sincere and and thoughtful and someone who was out to support Diana. And I think that was, I mean, I, I would say this, wouldn't I? That that was a fair reflection of of the person that I am. I really enjoyed That's that. Great. Do you remember the first weeks after the book was published and Diana's reaction? I just wonder if, you know, now that this book has been published, if there is some sort of regret or no. I mean, can we compare it to how Diana felt? Well, first of all, Harry will have thought long and hard before doing this, but he also has the undivided support of his wife, which is very different. I mean... This is the huge contrast between Harry and Diana. Diana was talking about a, a broken marriage, an unhappy marriage. Uh, Harry's talking about an unhappiness with an institution. So his is more a c- cerebral complaint than it is a, an emotional one. Diana, and let's just get this straight, never regretted for a, a living second having cooperated with the book and even wrote to us to say as much as there's been all kinds of speculation to say oh she regretted it she never did she was relieved when the book came out and so were many people who worked in Buckingham Palace because they had lived through this kind of Gormangastian reality of this couple living a separate separate lives from one another and it was making some of the the valets the the footmen, the bodyguards and so on, making them ill because they were having to live this lie on behalf of their principles. And so do you think that Harry will be the same? Like he, there'll be no regrets with this book because as you say, he, he has thought long and hard about it. I'm sure he's thought long and hard about it. I'm sure he's discussed it with Meghan endlessly. And I'm sure he feels that he's done the right thing. And this is a theme of their TV and uh, literary confessionals that they think that they've done the right thing. It's ironic, you know, that just before the the Queen's coronation, there were two major problems. One was uh, the death of Queen Mary, which had to be coped with. And then the other one was Princess Margaret and her relationship with a divorced query, Group Captain Peter Townsend, which was laid on the Queen's plate. King Charles has the, now has the issue of his sons taking each other to task before the, the coronation. So... Nothing changes. Yeah, <laughs> Nothing no. Changes. Knowing Diana as well as you did, what do you think she'll be thinking about William and Harry's um, fallout? Well, Diana was absolutely clear about this and she said it on several occasions. She saw the fact that she'd had two boys for a reason, that Harry was there to support William in his lonely position. He was there as William's wingman and he's turned out to be William's hitman in both a literary sense and, a, and an actual sense. That's How sad. And obviously she would support Harry in his decision to go on TV because she was 
because she was in talks with Oprah, ironically, before shortly before uh, Martin Bashir swooped in and scared her half to death. Uh, and she would have supported Harry in that. But as for the uh, rancour between the two brothers, I think not, as any mother would not uh, do so. But the, the, having said that, the Spencers are a family that like to row and fall out. So, you know, it is part of the weft and weave of, uh, of a family. How similar are Diana and Harry? Because he keeps mentioning in all these interviews and, you know, the docuseries about Diana and how similar he is to her, even how similar Megan is to her. Do you think they're similar? Well, of course, the, the DNA similarities between uh, Diana and, and, and Harry. I mean, Harry, you know, ginger hair, Spencer, reckless. Remember, <laughs> remember uh, uh, Diana's sister, Sarah, was thrown out, expelled from school, and she was the one who... Um, rode her horse into her grandmother's living room. You know, the, the Spencers are a family who fall out with one, one another, uh, make up with one another. You know, Charles and Diana fell out for a time. Over. Sounds like a normal family so, to me. So um, <laughs> uh, uh, Diana fell out with her mother after the after the wedding. So the, so there's a lot of falling out and making up in the Spencer family. So a lot of families don't do that. They they hide things under the surface. The, the, the Spencers have a history of bringing things to the to the top and letting it boil over. What outcome do you think Prince Harry wants from this publication? And do you think he will achieve it? Well, the outcome is it's going to be an international bestseller. I don't think it will sell as my as well as my Diana book, but, <laughs> yes, um, but at the same time, it's a simple instinct to tell your story in the way you want it told without interference from the tabloids or from other organs. Uh, so that you have control over your narrative. And the control of his narrative has been a thread of his life since the death of his mother, since since he became an adult. It's been a great chat, Andrew. Um, I would ask you, I think, a thousand more questions, but I know that we have to kind of cut it short. But I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, for talking all things Harry, Diana, Spare, your book. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Wow. We'll see if Harry ever regrets writing the book. But what a fascinating insight from someone who knows so much about this process. Well, Andrew will be pleased to know that his record has not been beaten quite yet as Spare only sold half a million copies on its first day. People obviously had a lot to say online, But what about the people who actually live near the royal couple? Here to chat all things about their lives in Montecito, we are joined by the couple's neighbour and columnist, Richard Minard. Richard, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Pleasure. Welcome. Obviously, we are here to talk about Harry and Meghan's life in Montecito, an area that you yourself know so much about. You've lived there for 15 years. What can you tell us about the area, particularly now... Uh, that Spare's been released in relation to the royal couple. Do you think the residents will be interested? What's the general feeling there? Well, I think there's a certain amount of interest in the dynamic duo. They live just one minute away from my home here. Um, And we're seeing a bit more of them in in the community because obviously during the pandemic, uh, when they first moved here, they were battening down the hatches, which I could understand. Because obviously with the children, they wanted to make sure they were safe. But they live in great splendor in a $14 million mansion in an area called Ribbon Rock, which is on eight or nine lush acres uh, surrounded by a wall. Uh, we have a very celebrity and wealthy driven community here. It's only 10,000 people. 
but what a 10,000 it is. Uh, as we all know, Oprah Winfrey lives here, uh, Ellen DeGeneres, uh, Kevin Costner, Jeff Bridges, uh, George Lucas, uh, Ariana Grande is here. Um, it's, it's quite an amazing community. It's not like Beverly Hills, though. You don't mistake the fact that we're going to have people on the streets selling maps to the movie star's home because we very much accept people who are wealthy and well-known. We don't bother them. And I think this is why Megan and Harry are very, very happy here. Uh, they'd be seen out and about shopping. Uh, just the other day, Harry was on the beach with his Labrador dog uh, walking in the rain. Uh, nobody bothered him, and I think he likes that. Uh, we're a long way from Hollywood. We're 100 miles up the 101, but you could be on a different continent. And that's why I think they like it here, because they feel safe. I know that Archie is at a preschool in Montecito. Um, the name has not come out, and I certainly wouldn't publish it. Um, and I think they're very, very happy here. Um, and given what's happened with uh, Spare, or as Charles might do a follow-up book called Despair, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think uh, Harry has said that he, they never moved back to the UK. And I do think the coronation coming up in the spring, I don't know whether they'll not go of their own volition, or because uh, I think they won't be invited. As a Brit in the US... Um... What do you think the, the public opinion among the American public is now that the book has been released? I really do think that uh, people are obviously uh, concerned about their behavior and obviously taking a, a message from what's happening in the UK about them. And I think overall the whole thing is sad because Harry was like the Duke of Windsor during 1936. He was the golden boy of the royal family, uh, much loved by the public. He fought for his country in Afghanistan. And uh, I really do think that Megan is, is vilified by everybody. And I've not met her. I met Harry. He played polo here during the summer at the polo club. And I found him rather charming. I asked him, what do I call you? And he said, Harry. And I said, well, Harry it is then. And I found him very amiable and amicable. So this kind of stuff that he's been doing on all the talk shows to publicize Spur um, really does surprise me. You know, as you were pointing out, you have a lot of famous residents in Montecito, um, you know, Oprah, Ariana Grande, all these incredible people, and things seem very normal there for them. I mean, how often have you bumped into them? Can you tell us any stories? Well, I, I really bumped into them far more than I had ever done during the summer at my polo club, because he'd been doing some sort of training there to make sure he kept in polo, because he's a very good polo player, much more so than William. And we had William and Kate here about 12 years ago for our 100th anniversary. Oh, wow. And William played in, yeah, he played in a round robin, awfully charming, and Kate presented him with the Tiffany Trophy. Yeah. And it was the most terrific sort of Santa Barbara day, you know, blue skies, yeah. searing sunshine, uh. the city twinkling. I mean, what could be better? That's why we all live here. Uh, but I, I really do think that uh, people are accepting them. They loved watching Harry play polo. And it did wonders for the polo club because spectator numbers soared merely to see his Royal Highness going through his paces with Nacho. So he does have some value. But I noticed the other day when he did that uh, interview, one of them either with Bradby or Cooper, that he asked, was asked about the titles. And he felt that, you know, so what if we do remove the titles? But obviously it's, it's very important, I think, because, you know, other than that, he's, he's going to be Harry Mountbatten Windsor, which is the family surname. Mm. And I don't think that has as much cachet with Americans as certainly uh, the Duke of this or the Duke of that. Um, and he risks losing it. What 
kind of upbringing will Archie and Lilibet have there? Well, I, I think if, if I'm, I'm obviously guessing, I don't know, but he's at a preschool, a very good preschool in Montecito. We have very good schools, uh, which are not like England public schools, but they're state schools. And we have a very good one right near Riven Rock. It's called Cold Springs School, which has got great rating. And that's in their catchment area. So if Archie then follows through getting a state education, um, the next um, the next stop after the, this, obviously, this preschool he's going to will then be some sort of uh, junior school. We have a very good junior school here called Montecito Union School, which is very, very good. It has a lot of Tony names attended. Uh, children of the rich and famous. And then, it, it, then as I say, he could go to Cold Springs, or maybe they'll say that, hey, we want to follow a private education. Obviously, Harry was at Ludgrove, and then on Eton College, um, and they might go the private route, which would be something like Laguna Blanca or Kate's School, which are very good private schools. Um, so it's really up to them what kind of path they take on educating the children. I mean, he's got the money to do it, um, but maybe Megan would like to sort of follow her normal roots and, and, and do it the state school way. I, I feel like I want to dig more on Montecito. And, you know, th- there's this unwritten rule that celebrities are treated like normal people in shops and restaurants. Is this true? Oh, without question. We have so many celebrities here. We don't count how to them. We don't get the iPhones. I'm saying, oh, may I get a selfie? I mean, I was at uh, a, a bookshop here the other day and Gwyneth Paltrow came in. And she's lived here with her husband, Brad Falchuk, some while they live in a rather lovely $5 million house just down the road here near Oprah. And uh, I sort of nodded her in recognition. I didn't bother her. Um, she was looking looks. Uh, the, the star wasn't in awe or gog. Hey, this is an Oscar winner. This is Montecito. Yeah. We don't do that sort of thing. And what is very odd, I might say, is that there are very important people, you know, very rich people, but no one has security guards with them upset what I've seen is Harry and Megan. I mean, every time he goes anywhere in his range forever, he's normally followed by three or four security men. Wow. I don't know how necessary that is. I he guess feels he's used all... to it. I think he would probably feel bare without them. And the estate is it's surrounded by walls, so, uh, which is about eight feet high. So it's very secure. And um, obviously the security men, they feel they need them. Just one question. If I wasn't a resident in Montecito and it was Halloween and I wanted to, to do trick-or-treating in the area, could I go? Of course you could. Oh, you could? Okay, it's dress- open to everyone. I just feel like well, it's I- a secluded thing that you, there's like one yeah, gate. Yeah. And- just, just don't dress up like the British press. No, God, no. no. Well, look, we're behind walls and privet hedges here, but we have a Coast Village Red, which is the main drag in Montecito. At Halloween, that becomes Ghost Village Red. And all the parents and kids dress up and everyone gets candy um, from all the story. And it's a really nice tradition. Um, and Montecito keeps those sort of things. July 4th, we have the Village Parade. And I remember uh, Justin Bieber and his wife and Ashton Kutcher, who lives just down the road in Carpentria, his wife, Myra, were in the crowd. So I gave them a royal wave, much practice. <laughs> and they, they waved back. And, I, and that's the way we are here. I mean, you would... Celebrities, yeah, we recognize them, but we don't fawn over them. We don't go gog. And we, more to the point, we don't bother them. Yeah, that's incredible. That is fantastic. That's Richard, great insight. unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Thank okay, you so much. Enjoy your day. It's been a pleasure. Bye bye. And now, who better to add insight to Harry and Meghan's California dream than LA based British author and royal expert Sandro Monetti? 
Hi, Sandra. Welcome to the podcast. God save the king. <laughs> that I'm is an such ethic a fervent loyalist. I had to open with that. Uh, thanks for having me on your wonderful show. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Um, so you are based in LA. I want to know, you know, you followed the royals for a long, long time. How are they viewed there right now? There has always been a fascination with royalty in America ever since this country was formed, really. It's a really unique, uh, special relationship. And I think for a long time, uh, America has been looking for its own royal family uh, with various uh, dynasties. You know, if you think there's royal obsessives in Britain, there's a whole lot more of them here. And uh, on the whole, a, a great deal of affection for the royal family, especially for the late queen. Do you think the view of them because as you say you know americans love the royal family they've been after their own royal family for a while you know i feel like my perspective of it is that america really welcomed harry and Meghan with open arms um, when they decided to move to california do you feel like the mood has changed at all or do you think they are as supported as ever harry and Meghan didn't just move to los angeles they moved to montecito in the santa barbara area and the two places are very, very different. And I just want to make sure your audience understands that. Uh, here in Los Angeles, uh, where I live, there's thousands of celebrities. You can, you can spit and hit one in the supermarket. They're, they're everywhere around <laughs> it. Um, Montecito is an enclave. And when everybody who lives in your street is, is super famous, uh, it, it, they're just another... Uh, celebrity. So, yeah. yes, they were welcomed with open arms to that community, you know, as just another, you know, uh, accomplished, famous couple who have moved in. And it's a gorgeous place. And it's the probably the place where they can have the best chance of finding happiness and seclusion. Absolutely. And I mean, as you were saying, it's this community, unlike anything, any other neighbourhood that we sort of know. What would you say about their relationships with each other? I mean, is it quite a chummy atmosphere? Are Harry and Meghan spending time with all the rest of the celebrities that live there? Um, no, they are not hanging out with all the celebrities that, that live there all the, all the time. They're... Uh... Not even um, Oprah. Yeah, breakfast <laughs> with uh, Jake. Yeah. <laughs> I have hung out with Oprah, and it's a it's an amazing uh, experience. You know, it's. Have uh, you been in at her house? When she puts her hand on your shoulder, it's like being touched by the hand of God. She is so special. <laughs> wow. It's such a special place. I have not been to the house, uh, but uh, you know, she has invited me to screening events, and I, I've met her, and it's special. But. Uh, yeah. Now you Amazing. have to remember they are sort of uh, young young parents, so they're not as social, you know, as they maybe would be in a, in a few years' time. And they have thought long and hard about this. And and so Megan, she grew up in in Los Angeles, and you know, so those roots, if she needs to reconnect with those, you know, are near enough. You can drive there rather than having to get on on a plane. But much like the other famous figures who live in Montecito. They don't want autograph hunters and press in their face every five minutes, as they would do if they lived in Los Angeles County. So by moving out, they have given themselves some of the uh, privacy uh, that we hear celebrities talk about so much. Uh, you can never guarantee it, of course, but you give us the best you give yourself the best chance going to somewhere like this, which is remote uh, enough to make that work. Is it like a, a secret, like, are there cafe areas that only the residents can go to? Like, 
I, I think I, I, we need to fly Is out. Is there a Montecito yes. bowling alley? Like, <laughs> what, what gives? Okay. Well, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint you that there is no shopping mall with, with a oh. green cinema and a, and a bowling alley. But when you're as rich as these two, you have your own screening room. So, yeah, so exactly. why would you go I mean, out to the on. cinema with your, your own screening room? Because you're just at uh, home you know. otherwise. They just live their lives in their house all the time. You know who lives down no the road? George Lucas. George Lucas, Mr. Star Wars, lives down the road, so they can go and check out his screening room if they want to exactly. get to the he's, neighbours. He's busy. Of... <laughs> he's writing his films. He doesn't now, need a nearby bowling alley. When they go outside, it's a story. Uh, when they close their own doors, you know, they're safe and they're protected, and, uh, you know, for the most part, the world isn't looking at them. Do you see that their Montecito home being their long-term home? I do not see the Montecito home being their long-term home, no. I see them, when the children are older, moving over towards Los Angeles County, perhaps uh, Malibu, of which Princess Diana was such a huge fan, uh, perhaps even Bel Air as, as well, a bit more to the centre of things, as their Hollywood careers uh, develop um, and, uh, and they decide to maybe focus on that going forward, if they if they so do. But also their, their children... Um, Yes, Meghan and Harry are very famous, but trust me, when Lilibet comes of age, oh, yeah. she is going to be the most famous person in California, if not America, because she's the only princess ever born in California. So just imagine a 21-year-old Lilibet. She is going to be the Ooh. biggest celebrity in town. You know, I'm sure... Will Will she date a Kardashian child? You know, there oh, is... Oh, God, no. So oh, God, There no. is a tradition... <laughs> I have higher aspirations ...of for all these dynasties <laughs> joining together. And uh, so what we have forming here in California is an alternative royal family, if, if you like. Yes, they've stepped away, but at the moment they've still got the titles. The children have got the titles. And so... Uh, yes, um, I think uh, Harry and Meghan are doing a good thing as parents of young children, uh, raising them in a secluded and safe environment. But as those kids come of age and if they develop particular interests themselves in the showbiz world, then they're much more likely to be wanting to move into Los Angeles County where all the action is rather than the quiet of Montecito. So it works for now. I'm not sure it'll be their home forever. OK, I think... That is all we've got time for. Thank you so much, Sandro. It's been a pleasure. pleasure. Thank you, and God save the kick. A lot of different opinions, a lot of different thoughts. There's no denying that the past few years have been challenging for the royal family, including Harry and Meghan. But we hope that the release of Harry's autobiography is a turning point for them, and we can't wait to see what their future holds. So that's everything from us today. Thank you so much to all of our guests and to you for joining us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to talk all things King Charles, so don't forget to subscribe now. In the meantime, catch more from Hello with our news and entertainment show, The Daily Lowdown, available on Spotify, Apple, and wherever you get your podcasts. Bye! Bye. <laughs>